Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. This week, in honor of the 45th anniversary of Earth Day, Jay and I will be looking at the environment, the progress we've made since that first Earth Day, how worried we should be about climate change, and what, if anything, government should be doing about it. Last Wednesday, April 22nd, was the 45th anniversary of the first Earth Day, which was held in 1970. That was also the year that the Environmental Protection Agency was created and the Clean Air Act was passed. Now, in the decades since, there's little question that uh, this government intervention and regulation has led to substantially cleaner air, water, and even a healthier ozone layer. You'd agree with that, right, Jay? Oh, I, I think so, yeah. I mean, for the, the most part. The Cuyahoga River isn't catching on fire or anything like that? No, no. So, good stuff. But, of course, these days, the big issue concerning the environment is climate change. Uh, and the biggest moment for that, I'd say, certainly, was Al Gore's um, slideshow on steroids, An Inconvenient Truth, which came out in 2006 and led to a Nobel Prize for Gore. They give these things to anyone these days, I guess. And I guess. Now, he shared that, though, with the... Uh, UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007. It was really a team event, so you get it for the whole team. Yeah, I don't know if they really helped with the slideshow, but I think they did a little more of the actual research. And speaking of of that research, I think that might be a good place for us to jump out. I just wanted to mention a few of the, um, I guess you'd call them the highlights from the fifth annual or the fifth assessment report of the IPCC, which came out in 2014. Uh, okay. Some of the some of the main things that they found, uh, they concluded that uh, warming of the climate system is unequivocal, and since the 1950s, many of these changes are unprecedented over uh, millennia, and that human influence on the climate system is clear. They estimated a 95 to 100 percent probability that human influence was the dominant cause of global warming between 1951 and 2010. And then finally, if the world continues on the path it is currently on, we're looking at average temperature increases of somewhere between 2.5 to almost 8 degrees Celsius by 2100, which would mean pretty much all the things you think it would mean, uh, a lot more things catching on fire, some species extinctions, you know, crop yield problems, fresh water becoming more of a problem. And then if we get up to the upper part of that range, we're talking mass extinctions and coastlines changing in unfortunate ways and that sort of thing. So pretty scary stuff. Well, uh, again, pretty scary stuff if you believe it. Uh, and I, I uh, would uh, call myself very much a skeptic for reasons we'll, we'll get into. Uh, and, and my sense is you're probably a little skeptical also as someone who does uh, both politics and a lot of uh, data uh, mining, data research. Uh, uh, you know how statistics can be skewed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I have, I have a, a number of reasons why I'm uh, – 
less concerned about it, uh, and that is the track record. Um, but go on, please. Okay. Well, I think you know there are a lot of terms that get thrown around. Uh, skeptic, I think, is a is a reasonably value neutral term. Uh, the term denier, I have a problem okay. with, and some in the environmental crazy movement like to use that. Um, and there are, of course, some people who are flat out deniers. But I think skeptic is is a more reasonable position to have. And it, it's important to point out that, uh, you know, the climate is, the global climate is one of the most complex systems that we know of. And of course, trying to predict changes in a, such an incredibly complex system, even uh, in the course of a year, not to mention decades from now, is a hugely difficult undertaking. And so, of course, there has to be a, you know, a big margin for, well, a lot, of, a big grain of salt, I guess, to take a lot of this with. So I think that's, I think that's fair. And it sounds to me like that's what you're saying in part. It, it is. And I, you know, there was uh, something recently posted. Uh, I think it came out originally from the Federalist website, which I got to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of because I think they sometimes go for the uh, over the top clickbait type. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Obama to declare martial law next week type headlines. Um, uh, but uh, two guys, uh, Ron Bailey and uh, Jonathan Adler. Um, and Adler is a, a Cleveland guy, um, a professor at Case Western Reserve. And sometime we got to get him on the show because uh, I think he'd probably do it. Anyway, there was there's uh, they're more of a libertarian type um, uh, mindset. And they said, look, look, at, look at this. What would it take for uh, skeptics like myself to uh, buy into the uh, climate change argument. And there were various people then posted responses to this. So here's, as a skeptic, here's what, uh, here's what I would need uh, before I sign on with this. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the responses, uh, and uh, uh, James Taranto on the Wall Street Journal uh, did a write-up on this. And I think this, this sort of, puts exactly where I am. Uh, the first one is a clear understanding of the temperature record. We've got maybe about 135 years of recorded temperatures. Now, to say that's global temperatures is something that's even, even more difficult because these are records that are were kept primarily in cities where you have uh, what's called the urban heat island effect. They're going to be a little bit warmer. Uh, it's also sort of selective the certain parts of the world, uh, and and it's also, you know, of questionable, um, uh, you know, how how good are the are, are they at keeping these records? If you recall, a couple of years back, uh, the Russians, it, it turned out, we looked at, at the temperatures that they had been reporting to, uh, and all this stuff was was kept at the East Anglia University in uh, uh, the UK for reasons I'm not still not clear on, <clears throat> but the the Russian reports had the same temperatures for about five years straight they just they just sent, keep sending the whole okay, the same I, thing I, back. I hear what you're saying it's an it's an incredibly complex system for one and number two our data has some problems and i think anyone who doesn't agree with that is uh is is i don't know is, is trying to sell you something so but even that, there are certain physical changes, certainly, that are incontrovertible, like uh, melting of polar ice and that sort of thing. So that, I mean, that seems to be much clearer, wouldn't you say? I'd, I'd say so. I mean, if you can say, here, the uh, we're having some melting here. Um, yeah, you can say it's getting warmer in this place. But often, 
we've seen other things such as, as more buildup in ice in other places. So I guess so my... to, say, to say it's global when you, you look at uh, well, we've had had uh, melting and that can, again, be related to changes in currents and so forth. And I'm, I don't want to say that. Uh, I'm not um, one of those people who argues that the climate isn't changing. Uh, in fact, I'd argue almost just the opposite. The climate is always changing. Uh, and that's sort of what makes this so difficult. Well, I, here, here's my – I understand what you're saying, and it, I think it makes a certain amount of sense. But my concern is this, is number one, admittedly, given the imperfect nature of the data we're dealing with, the complexity of the system, there still is a, an incredibly uh, broad consensus on people who study this. Now, I can just, I understand people can you know question some of that, but – my concern is if we wait until we have perfect data or much, much better data, that might cause some problems of its own because if some of these predictions, even the low-end predictions are right, they all seem to suggest that the longer we wait to do anything, the harder it's going to be, which makes perfect sense. And so do we want to delay on some action for 10, 15 years when at that point it might cost us twice as much? I don't know that that makes a lot of sense. Well, what I guess you'd have to ask: What action is it that you're going to delay on? Okay, that, I think that's other, yeah. That's the other piece of, of global warming or climate change that strikes me as as, as sort of bogus. Um, you, you want to go out and drive a Prius? Okay, you're great. Um, it, you know, sure. <laughs> you're not going to uh, avert Armageddon uh, unless you uh, get everyone. Uh, first of all, have everyone's Prius be solar uh, powered. Uh, and also you get everyone in China, India to do it too. Um, right. Well, I think one of the problems with this is it's a lot easier to calculate the costs of doing something to mitigate this. Those costs are right up front. They're, you know, they'd be present-day costs, and it's a lot harder because of the complexity of the system and our inability to know what things are going to be like 50, 75, 100 years from now to know what the potential – benefits are, what the potential future costs are of not acting. And so that's sort of a recipe for inaction, because we know if we want to do anything, we're going to have to pay up front. And nobody likes paying up front for potential future benefits of an undetermined nature. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and this would lead me to another reason for my skepticism. I didn't get through my three big points of, of what it would take for uh, to convince oh, uh, please, an unbeliever. Go ahead. Yeah. No. no, point two was you know, first point one was the uh, records. And going back to East Anglia University, you will recall a couple of years back, there was something of a scandal where it was found out that these scientists at East Anglia, their emails back and forth talking about, you know, what would they do to hide the decline in temperatures over the past 15 years? Uh, because, geez, people weren't, uh, they were concerned that uh, people would not agree with their findings uh, if they actually published what their findings were. Yeah, now, now I know um, a lot more was made of that in the right-wing media than in the mainstream media, and and we, you and I, might disagree a little bit in the terms of the uh, in terms of the uh, ramifications of that. But certainly, there were some folks who, at least privately, were uh, talking about ways of potentially massaging some of the data or at least uh, how they, how it would be released. So, yeah, we can agree on that. And that well, and, that's a problem. To me, to me, that is is uh, plainly – I mean, if, if people wanted to, to, uh, to rely on science and keep saying the science is settled, the science is settled, 
Well, that's not science. Uh, is the, how can we make this work come out the way we want? The other big piece of East Anglia uh, that's even more troubling was they adjusted the, some of their findings, and these are the findings then that go into the UN panel uh, findings that uh, climate is, is warming up and is the worst in, in you know, what, what did you say, 500 years, 3,000 years? I, I think I might have said ever. millennia at one point. So, yeah, that's yeah, a long, that's, co- that's a long time. Bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, you know, the, the, again, millennia, uh, the records we kept back then were, were even not less less good. Um, but they took the, the original data from those 135 years and they went back and they adjusted it. And you're like, all right, well, that might make some sense uh, because the the uh, uh, ability of the instruments we had then might not have been what we were, what we had now, and other factors you can adjust for. But then after they adjusted it, they destroyed the original data, and that's that's something that's really really troubling. And again, if someone's going now, to did they destroy it or science, was it lost? Or was it, uh, you know, was that accidentally? Was it on purpose? Here's here's my problem well, with this either, line of with this either, line of reasoning. Way. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Way. Well, way. well, no, no. There's a big difference between purposefully destroying data and accidentally losing it because that intent means a lot. But here's my problem with this whole line of reasoning. In that, uh, to, to borrow a line from from your party, uh, I'm not a climate scientist. Uh, uh, neither are you. Neither are most of the people who are writing on this, and yet. People seem to be more than willing to get into the uh, somewhat arcane elements of how to interpret client science findings and core samples and so forth. And it just seems to me to be, uh, you know, ridiculous in a way. So if you're saying, you know, you're not going to, you know, trust the vast majority of client scientists to do their job in in an appropriate way, well, who should we trust? People who are being funded by energy companies? Why should we trust them anymore? I, I don't... You know, who, who are you going to trust? It, it, well, I think. You, should, you should trust them more because they have the original data. I mean, that's, that's, where, that's where I'm coming from. If, if you were uh, putting this case on in court, there are rules of evidence. And one of them is when you've got a, some sort of scientific conclusion, someone uh, saying, presenting expert testimony, they have to put together an expert report. And they have to put together, here are all the things I relied upon in coming up with my report. Now, if you go into court and you say, you know, my conclusions are X and Y, and the opposing party says, can you show me the data? And they say, well, no, I can't. Then that report doesn't get in. Sure, but now, in most cases, they can show they the data. It intentionally or whether they lost it. I, I think you're cherry picking here. You're taking a, a couple instances where admittedly there may be some real problems. And that, that is, that is a, an issue of concern. But just taking out a few instances like that when there's just so much evidence from the vast majority of people who study this that find similar things, uh, at least similar general conclusions, uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's a very strong case that you're making. But, but oh, in any case, but it, we're, we're not going to agree on, on this pretty clearly. Um, I think what we can agree on is that there may be a problem and it may be a big deal. Uh, but uh, there are some folks who say that even if it is a big problem in the future, there may be bigger problems in the present that we should deal with. I'm thinking of particularly uh, Bjorn Lomberg. The I'm skeptical. a big fan of Bjorn Lomberg. Okay. Do you want to you say a few things about uh, his approach to this? Well, uh, yeah, Bjorn Lomberg is uh, was formerly uh, very involved in Greenpeace, 
and he set out – this was going probably back about 10 years ago, I think, his, his uh, book came out. The Skeptical Environmentalist. Skeptical right? Environmentalist yeah. and then Cool It, I think, was the one after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but his, his, uh, his initial mission was to prove skeptics like me wrong. Uh, and what he did in looking at this is he became more skeptical. Uh, not so much of he, – he sort of said, look, even if um, we assume that global warming – because we still called it global warming then uh, – was happening at the rate that we think it is, one, it might not be that big of a deal. Uh, two, there's not much you can do about it. And three, the things you can do about it are not necessarily the things that are being recommended – and there's these things that, that you can do ab- about it are are cheaper, are easier, uh, are market based, um, and and for all this, he has been very uh, <laughs> much vilified by the environmental community, as sure. you might expect. Yeah. Um, well, I think that that issue of weighing the costs and the benefits and what's the best use of our money right now. I mean, there's certainly something to be to be said for that, I think, type of approach, though, I guess I would disagree in that there's nothing that we can do that might, you know, that might not be effective right now. I think there are a number of things that government could do that wouldn't necessarily involve uh, really stringent or more stringent regulations on industry that government isn't doing. Okay. Like, like what are some examples? Okay. My, my, my top example, I guess, would involve subsidies. I would say subsidies, two things. Number one, well, wait, let me finish. Number Mm -hmm. one, I think subsidies for for fossil fuel should be decreased. Uh, Right now, we still subsidize fossil fuels. Now, it's difficult to measure this sort of thing when you talk, when you bring in the tax code and various types of direct and indirect subsidies, essentially. But uh, you're you're talking about things like, uh, for example, oil companies would have losses on a lot of exploration, and those losses would be – they would be able to write those off, of course. Uh, there might be other incentives uh, for oil companies or abilities to to get land more cheaply, uh, access to federal land and so forth, that type of thing, if well, I'm understanding you right. Yeah, and again, the categories get, get very kind of mushy. Um, when if you look at just more sort of direct subsidies that are focused specifically on the energy industry as opposed to various other things in the tax code uh, according to the energy the energy information administration they came out with a report at uh, the end of march actually they said that right now we're subsidizing coal to the extent of around $1.1 billion a year at least this was for 2013 which is the last year they had data and uh, natural gas and what they call petroleum liquids, around $2 billion, and then about uh, $1.6 billion in nuclear subsidies. Okay. So I think one thing to do would be to, uh, to, to cut those subsidies. Now, renewables are being subsidized as well. Actually, to a greater extent, uh, that same report found that renewables were being subsidized uh, around $15 billion. Right. And I, I think I was just going to point out the numbers you just gave on the fossil fuel subsidies. In federal terms, I mean, they're certainly big numbers uh, to you and me, but in federal terms, those aren't huge numbers. Oh, God, no. No, not at all. And I think one thing that can be done certainly is uh, 
maybe not not even necessarily directly increasing the subsidies, but actually in some cases I think for that, uh, for alternative energies, but also doing what they can do to uh, incentivize the private sector to do more oh, research on... It's a horrible word, incentivize. I'm right. sorry. Okay, to provide incentives <laughs> for the private sector to do research. Because one of the problems with energy subsidies for a long time has been, especially for renewable alternative energies, has been that they haven't been, or they've been kind of a stop and go sort of thing. So there'll be a poorly designed subsidy that will be put into place for a few years, and all of a sudden everyone's building uh, wind power generators. And then that subsidy is yanked, and then it's put back in, and then it's yanked again. I mean, that's not the way to do a long-term energy policy. There would be nothing that would – I mean it would be, like you said, those few billions, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. The federal government could easily quadruple its subsidies in various ways for renewable energies without that having much of a significant impact on the federal budget. Mm. Well, you know, I guess in terms of the, the renewable subsidies, I think you've got to you're, – you're working from the assumption and, and uh, God bless you um, that – the the point of these subsidies is actually to create uh, viable renewable energy sources, uh, and not just to make some some favored people a lot of money. Um, that, that's know, an excellent sub- point. Yeah, I, know. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I, you know, while you've been talking, I've just been, you know, shouting shouting Solyndra, uh silently here. Uh, Which wall, wasn't actually but, the scandal that it that it initially looked like, but I think that's a kind of a side issue. But you're right on the general point is it's very important how subsidies are designed. It's very easy for them to become uh, uh, inefficient or corrupt if they're designed poorly, and that that's a that's a big issue, especially if you're if you're talking about putting more money into subsidies. I actually like the idea uh, of, and this is kind of a newer idea uh, of. Not so much subsidies, but uh, prizes and things like that. So the federal government essentially setting a goal and saying, okay, the first company that can meet meet this goal gets whatever X billion dollars or however million dollars. You know, I I would be I would be more in favor of that approach than the straight out ahead uh, subsidy. Um, But, you know, from the, the free market perspective, that prize is already out there. If, if you're the guy who can come up with renewable energy, uh, making it efficient, making it workable, um, if you've got that plan, the money is going to be there and the prize is going to be there and it is going to be huge. Uh, the fact that the private sector hasn't been able to, to come up with this, uh, I think is not so much a, a testament to the fact that it hasn't been subsidized enough, uh, but more just to this is really – it's a really tough problem. Well, and, and, and some folks would say that part of the problem is that they're, uh, it's, you know, this is not the kind of thing you can do as a, you know, a, a backyard inventor kind of person. This takes billions of dollars to really do, in which case maybe there is a role for, say, subsidies over prizes or something like that. And given the fact that fossil fuels are still so ubiquitous and so inexpensive in many instances that there's not really currently 
an economic incentive to do this sort of thing. The problem with that, of course, is if, if we wait until there is a, uh, an economic incentive where we have you know, so much uh, more difficulty pulling uh, fossil fuels out of the ground that they become more expensive, then any potential uh, climate environmental problems might be far more difficult to solve. And so there, I think there might be uh, a role for subsidies. Well, I, you know, I, I think I think you're misreading the market uh, in that right now oil prices are low, uh, but that's sort of off of a, a pretty sharp decline or a pretty sharp increase that we'd seen over the last ten years, and those things things fluctuate. And regardless of of oil, uh, uh, natural gas, or, or any other fossil fuels, the market for renewable clean energy is always there just because it's renewable and clean and it runs on. Uh, you know, rainbows and, and happiness, and, and people will do that. I mean, uh, again, well, and I should point out of, too of, uh, of, of hybrid cars. A lot of people don't realize that in many instances, renewable renewable energy is actually less expensive to generate than uh, fossil fuels. In fact, I wasn't aware of this. Uh, the uh, uh, the standard in the industry is to use a, a term called, called the levelized cost, which is basically means uh, the cost it would it would be to create uh, energy, a certain amount of energy they use, a megawatt hours, uh, based on new plants being put into production today, essentially, and coming online in a few years. And it's just, I mean, so it's kind of an artificial measure, certainly, but it's a way to sort of, you know, compare across types of energy. And actually, the least expensive type of energy is geothermal, which is just around $48 per megawatt hour. Uh, okay. From there, wind goes up to around eighty dollars per megawatt hour, and that's the non-offshore, not the you know the the wind farms out in right. the oceans and that kind of thing. Um, and then there's hydroelectric at eighty-four point five, and only then do we start to see the fossil fuels. Coal comes in at ninety-five point six, and nuclear's right around there, ninety-six point one. Solar's a lot more expensive, one hundred and thirty, and natural gas is kind of a weird part of this because depending on the type of plant, it can vary anywhere from 66 to 128. Um, okay. And the 128 is using the conventional technology, but they have some, you know, kind of real gee whiz sort of technologies that make it a lot cheaper. But the point being is a lot of these renewable resources are considerably less expensive to generate. But of course, a big part of the problem is the storage and they're, they're not as consistent as... Well the other, yeah, the other issue is um, when you talk about generate, or does that include the actual building cost of the plants? Yeah, it, it okay. includes all that stuff. But one thing I wanted to point out is that um, nuclear power, because that was the third or the second thing that I think uh, we could potentially do. And this is, you know, to this point, people who I think are a little more on the left have probably been agreeing with me. Uh, here, I'm going to say something that they might not agree with very much, and that, uh -oh. yeah. That is, I think one one thing that we can certainly do is we can make it easier to build nuclear reactors. Uh, nuclear power is uh, it's it's from a, you mean from a from a regulatory standpoint? Yes, um, <laughs> because right now we have uh, we have uh, ninety nine reactors in sixty one plants across the country. The average age of these reactors is thirty four years. And these reactors were designed to last for about forty years. So you can see the problem. Yes. Um, and right now we do have five new reactors under construction, but that's not nearly enough to make up for all the older reactors that are going to have to go online or offline 
at some point. And this is a big deal because right now nuclear is around 19% of our electricity generation. So it's a pretty huge chunk. And certainly in terms of environmental impact, the environmental environmental impact is far less for nuclear than it is for fossil fuels. And that that's a big deal. And it is, you know, I, people are going to well, think I, of Japan. I would say I'd, give you, I'd give you a yes and a no on, on that. And, and again, I'm a proponent of nuclear power. Um, but, you know, I guess the environmental impact, if you're talking just about carbon emissions, uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, if, if you have one particularly bad day at a nuclear power plant, though, I think those, those numbers change. <laughs> well, not – I mean, no. So I, th I think that's where people uh, exaggerate this sort of thing. Uh, nuclear power is safer now than it than it's ever been. And the things that happened in the Japanese plant are sort of – a lot of those are very specific to that plant and that design so forth. And I think what you do is when you when you discourage – this sort of uh, growth in, in an industry and in an energy sector is that means that people aren't able to develop new and safer type of things. And, and so I think this is just a huge resource that we're uh, – it, it's, it's horrible that we're not developing this resource more because it is, it is safe, it is clean, it is efficient, and just people are scared of it for, in many cases, not very good reasons. Well, I, I, I applaud your uh, candor and come on over to this because, again, I agree with you. and I'm a proponent of, of uh, nuclear power uh, as I'm also a proponent of fossil fuel power. Uh, and I think you maybe hit, hit the nail on the head that – and we've talked about this, this before – is everything is a trade-off. Uh, if you're going to be a grown-up and mature about, about this, about public policy, you have to accept that. And if there are greater risks occasionally uh, with nuclear power or perhaps the, the long-term risk is, is smaller but the, the percentage of a catastrophic risk is higher, uh, that's, that's things, those are things you have to factor in. Um, and uh, if people are serious about uh, concerns about global warming, which is another would be another part of my, my test of, of how much I really am worried about it uh, – then they ought to be embracing nuclear power. Well, and that, and that's really interesting. We haven't talked about this, but in polling data, people uh, absolutely say that they're serious about it. They think something should be done, except they seem to want something to be done that doesn't actually cost anything. Right. So they're, yeah. they're serious about it until it affects them in the pocketbook, which is sort of a problem because no real large-scale solutions are going to, are going to come cheap. Well, I, 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 well, I disagree with. I mean, cheap, and we'd have to figure out. You well, know, that's sort of a relative term, and uh, solutions to what may or may not be that big of a problem. But no, you're you're right on the the, the basic uh, part that everything is a trade off, and uh, um, so you know you have to be willing to to make to make those trade offs, whether it's it's you're not comfortable with nuclear or something like that, or you want to spend a whole whole lot more on uh, something like a, a solar regime. Which has gotten a lot more efficient and a lot less expensive over time, certainly, as there's been more uh, development in that field. So, okay, the, the things that I mentioned that I'd like to see government do is two basic things, right, in terms of subsidies to decrease the subsidies for fossil fuels and increase significantly subsidies in various ways for alternative energy, and then also to try to focus much more on nuclear power generation. So that's my – those are my ideas. What do you – what are your ideas? What do you think should be done, if anything? Um, 
I, I think, uh, first of all, I'm with you on the um, maybe getting out of some of the uh, fossil fuel subsidies just because I'm I'm a free market guy and I, I think the more uh, government gets out of private industry, the better. Um, my concern with government action, and, and this is something I alluded to earlier, is it seems that whatever the problem, whether it is nuclear power, uh, whether it's global warming, climate change, whether it was the, the feared ice age of, of the 1970s, um, the solution is always the same, and that's always a whole lot of government intervention. Um, and that, again, makes me, me skeptical. Um, in terms of, of what I would do, what uh, government policies I would do, that's, I guess, my sense is try to, try to keep them out as much as possible. Uh, but let's talk about uh, opening up federal lands for drilling. Uh, let's talk about things like the uh, XL pipeline, where we've got energy there waiting and, and uh, we can go ahead and uh, start using it. Um, and, and I guess my, my biggest thing, would look, the government ought not to stand in the way of exploration of research and development, uh, regardless of where that might uh, take us. Okay, so that, that's where we would differ because I think that the government should absolutely stand in the way of development that would lead to very negative, what our economists would call externalities, uh, at the potential costs in terms of environmental degradation and that sort of thing in the future that uh, aren't taken care of in the market because the market, of course, is – uh, notoriously bad for dealing with those sort of external costs. And uh, so that's, I think, where government does have a role. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that uh, government doesn't have a role. And I think, you know, we get into an interesting question when you talk about things like pollution and environmental degradation versus things like uh, climate change. Uh, on the, the one hand, I think it's very easy for conservatives to say, yes, we're against uh, pollution. We don't want to... Uh, pour toxic waste into our streams. Uh, we want the uh, air coming out of the smokestacks to be filtered and cleaned uh, as, as best as possible. Uh, but when you talk about climate change and global warming, you're talking about things that, that are inherent to the use of, of fossil fuels. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't clean the, the carbon dioxide, really. It's part of the chemical reaction. Right, though, though there are technologies being developed to uh, what's it to sequester it, it yeah. yeah, to store it yeah. and so forth. And those, of course, are still in their infancy, but uh, that might be, and that's the sort of thing that I think might benefit from uh, greater government support. Okay, those sort of thing. I mean, I I'm sort of a technological optimist, and that's why uh, that's why I think we can agree that some of these uh, some of these uh, projections about where we're going to be in in 50 years and so forth, well, technology changes, and we're almost certainly going to develop some really cool and useful stuff. Over, lithium crystals. You know, there you go. So it's uh, the way of the future. These things will happen, and those are going to make a difference. And in part, maybe I'm optimistically betting that the pace of technological change will uh, be faster than the pace of environmental degradation. At least I'm certainly hoping so. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you there, and I think. Uh, I, I look forward to a, a fairly bright future, and again, I will uh, stake my confidence in a bright future uh, in looking at the past predictions that were made at that first Earth Day, uh, uh, where, uh, again, we were being uh, – <laughs> keep in mind, yeah. no one talked – you know, again, the, the idea was mass famines by the, the mid-'80s and uh, uh, 
a new ice age uh, brought on by by smog. Um, and, and none of it's happened. And even the dire predictions uh, made in 1988, which is when Al Gore really first got on the global warming bandwagon, um, uh, again, of, of our cities being underwater by the 2000s and so forth, uh, none of it happened. Uh, the other UN climate predictions that were made in the uh, 90s through the 2000s, Again, it just hasn't happened yet. So I, I am optimistic like you, um, and I continue to be optimistic, both in that uh, the technology we're going to have is going to be sufficient to meet the challenges and that the problems that we're being warned of today are probably not that bad, uh, or at least not as bad as, as uh, the people selling the government snake oil would like us to believe. Okay. Well, you know, we can actually do something uh, bizarre and end on that optimistic note. Yeah. Let's do so. that. Okay. I think so. Well, then, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us throughout the week on the Politics Guys blog, which you can find on our website, politicsguys.com, as well as on Twitter, where we tweet throughout the week. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back next Sunday with another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.